Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 18 edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The intrusion of claims for medical marijuana as treatment for an industrial injury is an insidious process. It proceeds in a state-by-state -state push headed toward a tipping point that may lead to an avalanche. And now another state high court will soon rule on a case that may add or subtract from the push. The Maine Supreme Judicial Court will decide if state law requires workers' compensation insurance to pay for a mill worker's medical marijuana, or if the insurer could be charged as an accessory in a drug deal under federal law. Justices are set to hear arguments in the case, which will be the first time the state's highest court has considered the question. The case pits an insured mill employee against the company that administers the insurance for injured workers. 58-year-old Gaetan Bourgoyne sought reimbursement in 2015 for medical marijuana prescribed for back pain after a 1989 injury. Burgoyne tried a variety of opioid-based painkillers over the years without relief. In 2015, the Maine Workers' Compensation Board ordered Sedgwick Claims Management Services to reimburse him for his medical marijuana. The cost of the drug runs between $350 and $400 a month, compared to the more than $2,000 a month it had cost for opioid-based prescription painkillers. Attorneys for the mill and Sedgwick appealed the decision, arguing that an insurer cannot be ordered to pay for marijuana since it is illegal under federal law. They argued that the U.S. Department of Justice could prosecute insurance companies for reimbursing people for purchasing illegal drugs. In addition, they argued that reimbursement violates the main statute that legalized the drug for medical use. The Maine Medical Use of Marijuana Act states that it may not require a private health insurer to reimburse a person for costs associated with the medical use of marijuana. The worker countered that the state's workers' compensation law provides that injured workers are entitled to reasonable and proper medicines as needed, which would include marijuana in this case. New Mexico's appellate court appears to be the only state appellate court in the country that has ruled on reimbursement by insurers for medical marijuana. In three different cases since 2014, New Mexico justices have ruled that state law requires insurance companies to pay for medical marijuana. And in regulatory news, the WCRC which is the entity which reviews workers' compensation Medicare set-asides for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has issued a contract to Capital Bridge LLC, a government services firm in Virginia. The purpose of the contract is to independently review and approve the Medicare set-asides submitted by workers' compensation administrators at the time of settlement. CMS now routinely updates their Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Asides Reference Guide, providing detailed information on how to handle settlement for Medicare-eligible expenses. However, for liability cases, CMS has been far less clear, making it difficult for claims and other attorneys to ensure that Medicare will not seek reimbursement down the road. 
CMS recently directed Medicare Administrative and Recovery contractors to create a set-aside process for liability Medicare set-asides as well as for no-fault Medicare set-asides. The two new processes are scheduled to go into effect as of October 1, 2017. This should provide some framework for claimants involved in non-workers' compensation cases. The new contract award is for about $60 million, which shows that CMS expects a larger number of MSA reviews after this October. The new company will begin reviewing liability Medicare set-asides and no-fault Medicare set-asides as early as July 1, 2018, in addition to an increased volume of workers' compensation set-aside agreements over the years. Provider Resources Incorporated had been awarded the contract since 2011. They have seen good turnaround times from Provider Resources, and it is likely that Capital Bridge will continue to provide MSA approvals expeditiously. Since the issuance of the latest reference guide, the industry has seen a shift in some of the approval policies. The current reviewer is now requiring a court order to approve a $0 allocation based upon denial of the claim. Further, with California MSAs in which an employer has relied upon a utilization review, CMS is now requiring an independent medical review decision or a court order to support the UR decision. As U.S. consumer outrage grows over prescription drug prices, state authorities and patient advocates in Maryland are preparing to enforce the nation's first law designed to punish drug maker price gouging. The state attorney general's office said it will field complaints and investigate unconscionable increases in essential generic medicines when the closely watched law takes effect in October. Drug makers fear the Maryland law will embolden other states and are seeking a court-ordered injunction. A U.S. District Court judge in Baltimore should decide on an injunction in the coming days. Anticipating the law will survive the legal challenge, the Attorney General's office said it is working with Johns Hopkins University to identify price spikes which are not made public by drug makers. And patient advocacy groups are urging consumers to report increased costs for their medicines. Pharmaceutical companies have so far dodged stricter federal oversight despite growing outrage over price hikes. But states struggling to cover rising health care costs are taking up the fight. At least 176 bills on pharmaceutical pricing and payments have been introduced this year in 36 different states, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Maryland's law is the most aggressive legislation to be passed so far and allows the state to levy fines and order a reversal of price increases. The Association for Accessible Medicines, a generic industry trade group that filed the lawsuit, argues that the new law is unconstitutional. Nevada has been sued by two industry trade groups after passing in June a law requiring diabetes drug makers to justify price increases above a certain amount. 
Ohio voters next year will decide on a ballot measure requiring drug makers to offer state groups the same discounts given to the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs. A similar measure failed in California last year. But the state's legislature this week approved a drug pricing bill requiring drug makers to justify price increases over 16% in a two-year period. This now goes to the California governor for final decision. The California Insurance Commissioner issued a decision regarding the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau's January 1, 2018 regulatory filing. He approved the following. The WCIRB's proposed changes to the California Workers' Compensation Uniform Statistical Reporting Plan 1995. Miscellaneous Regulations for the Recording and Reporting of Data, 1995. California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan, 1995. Some of these changes are effective January 1, 2018, and others are effective the following January. The WCIRB will begin calculating January 2018 experience modifications within the next several days. The decision pertains only to the WCIRB's regulatory filing and does not include amendments to the advisory pure premium rates, which will be reviewed next. <clears throat> the DWC has posted an order adjusting the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system as required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The Physician and Non-Physician Practitioner Fee Schedule Update Order adopts the following Medicare changes. Number one, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Medicare National Physician Fee Schedule Relative Value File RVU-17D, October 1, 2017 Quarterly Update. Secondly, the National Correct Coding Initiative Physician Practitioner Services CCI Edits, October 1, 2017, quarterly update. And finally, the National Correct Coding Initiative Medically Unlikely Edits, October 1, 2017, quarterly update. The order adopting the OMFS adjustments is effective for services rendered on or after October 1, 2017 and can be found on the DWC website. A new study on the California IMR process finds that in the first half of this year, more than 91% of all UR modifications or denials of treatment that review, were reviewed by an IMR physician were upheld. And after increasing steadily since 2013, IMR volume appears to be leveling off. In its new study, the CWCI tallied more than 86,000 IMR decisions issued in the first half of this year. It estimates that the volume of IMR letters for the remainder of 2017 will decline 2.2% from the 2016 level, while the number of individual treatment requests decided in those letters will be down six-tenths of a percent. This is the first time IMR volume has not increased since the process took effect in 2013. CWCI's analysis also found that IMR physicians upheld UR 91.3% of the time, which is virtually identical to the 91.2% uphold rate in 2016. As in prior years, pharmaceutical requests accounted for almost half 
of the 2017 IMR decisions, led by opioids, which represented 28.8% of all 2017 prescription drug IMRs. This was even though IMR doctors have consistently upheld the UR decision in 90% of the opioid requests. Requests for physical therapy, injections, durable medical equipment, and MRIs, CTs, and PET scans together compromised another 29% of the 2017 IMRs. But no other medical service category accounted for more than 44% of the disputed requests. The study also confirmed that a relatively small number of physicians constitute continue to account for most of the disputed medical services that go through IMR. Additional details and graphics from the study are available on the CWCI Spotlight Report. And in medical news, there were over 1,900 opioid-linked overdose deaths in California last year and thousands of emergency room visits. The problem also has a decidedly geographic dimension in California. In rural and semi-rural parts of the state, where the demographics resemble Appalachia more than Anaheim, prescription drug use and death rates vastly exceed the state average. Trinity County is the state's fourth smallest county and ended last year with an estimated population of nearly 14,000 people but its residents also filled prescription for oxycodone, hydrocodone, and other opioids over 18,400 times, the highest per capita rate in California. Besides Trinity, other counties with more prescriptions than people include Lake Shasta, Tulum, and Del Norte counties. In the Sacramento region, El Dorado, Placer, and Sacramento counties had prescription rates above the statewide average, with Yolo County slightly below the state average. Statewide, 15% of Californians were prescribed opioids in 2016, ranging from 7.3% of residents in tiny Alpine County to almost 27% in Lake County. The following characteristics were associated with higher amounts of opioids prescribed. Last month, the National Institute on Drug Abuse awarded nine grants to address the opioid crisis in rural places. Once prescribed mainly for short-term pain relief, prescription painkillers increasingly are taken for chronic pain, and young people are among the biggest abusers. One in five teens has abused a prescription pain medication. Although overall teen drug use has declined nationally, prescription drugs are second only to marijuana in teen drug abuse. The age range that featured the largest prescription rate increase were ages 70 to 74 years old. Entrepreneurs have always had an eye on the benefits of doing business within the sovereign immunity protection of recognized American Indian tribes. That is because generally recognized tribes are exempt from most state and federal law. A recent California example was staffing companies that claimed to be tribal, a tribal enterprise that acted as an employer claiming to be exempt from the costly California workers' compensation insurance requirements. Now there's a new tryst to an old idea. A deal between drug maker Allergen PLC 
and a Native American tribe is in the works to shield the company's patents in administrative proceedings. Legal experts said it could also be used to protect them from challenges in federal court potentially dealing a blow to generic drug competition. Allergan said it had transferred patents on its blockbuster dry eye medicine, Restasis, to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, which will exclusively license the patents back to the company in exchange for ongoing payments. The deal takes advantage of the fact that the tribe is treated as a sovereign nation immune to civil lawsuits. Allergan said it believed the Restasis patents would no longer be subject to review by the U.S. Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which is an administrative court empowered to cancel patents through a process called inter-parties review. But judges across the country have found tribal immunity applies to litigation in federal court. That means other brand-name drug companies could be motivated to follow Allergan's lead and transfer their patents to tribes severely severely limiting generic manufacturers' ability to challenge those patents. Drugs made by brand-name manufacturers like Allergan, Pfizer, and Merck and Company are usually protected by patents for up to 20 years after they are introduced. But generic companies can bring their versions to market earlier if they can successfully sue to have those patents invalidated. The price of a drug drops dramatically once generic versions enter the market. Restasis sales were $1.4 billion last year. Congress created the Patent, Trial, and Appeal Board in 2011 to make it easier and cheaper to challenge patents, and it has been embraced by generic drug companies. Earlier this year, the board invalidated some of the patents held by AbbVie Incorporated on its $16 billion immunosuppressant Humira raising the possibility of low-cost competition from the country's best-selling drug. Challenging patents in federal court is slower and more expensive, though generic companies certainly still do it. Teva Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and other generic companies are suing Allergen in federal court, seeking a ruling that the latter's Restasis patents could not have been granted in the first place because they cover obvious concepts. And in other industry news, digital devices and mobile applications are breathing new life into traditional workers' compensation services. This was a key takeaway, one of the sessions presented at the 2017 California Workers' Compensation and Risk Conference at Dana Point by Joseph McCullough, the Senior Vice President of Product at One Call Care Management. Until recently, the workers' compensation industry relied on an antiquated approach to coordinating transportation. This required a lot of manual oversight. This new model resulted in a significant number of missed medical appointments which can delay and even derail an injured worker's progress towards recovery. But ride-sharing has now become widely accepted with rapid adoption in healthcare and workers' compensation. Integrating ride-sharing with a secure digital platform and proper credentialing has helped make this new model safe and appropriate for the workers' comp market. And OneCall has experienced a 50% increase in daily ride-sharing trips over the last seven months. 
digitization of non-emergency medical transportation as well as other additional services is a radical shift for the industry. Today, transportation network companies, or TNCs as they are called, like Lyft, use ride-sharing to provide full digital capabilities, ride coordination, and an overall streamlined process. Clinical claims and return-to-work outcomes improve as patients attend appointments with greater consistency and reliability. But there have been fears over exposure and liability, and some initially considered ride-sharing to be risky because of misconception that the industry was not being properly regulated. But now 48 states have passed TNC-related regulations for driver and vehicle safety, licensing, background checks, and liability insurance. And these regulations are often stricter and more onerous than those regulating traditional taxi companies. Beyond these requirements, patient experience is also enhanced. Injured workers have improved visibility into the details of their rides, and they can rate their satisfaction with drivers and their ride experience. And looking forward, using the same type of modern digital platform, it may be possible to streamline the delivery of other accompanying services, such as web-based video translation services. Copperpoint announced it will acquire Pacific Compensation Insurance Company, a California-based workers' compensation carrier, for $150 million in cash. The combined book of underwriting business for the two companies will represent about $400 million in premium at a combined asset base of nearly $4.1 billion with $1.5 billion in policyholder surplus. Copper Point was founded in 1925 and is headquartered in Copper Point Tower in Phoenix, Arizona and has a presence statewide. Today, it provides workers' compensation insurance to more than 12,000 businesses as well as offers other business insurance products, including property and casualty coverage. It holds $1.35 billion in surplus and more than $3.4 billion in assets with no debt. The family of Copper Point Insurance Companies and its subsidiaries are rated A, excellent by AM Best. Copper Point was privatized and converted to a mutual insurance company in 2013 with a vision of geographic expansion and product diversification. Pacific Compensation Insurance Company provides workers' compensation insurance coverage exclusively through independent insurance brokers for California companies. The company was formerly known as Employers Direct Insurance Company and changed its name to Pacific Compensation Insurance Company in 2010. The company was incorporated in 2002 and is based in Westlake Village, California. Pacific Compensation Insurance Company operates as a subsidiary of Allegheny Insurance Holdings, LLC. The acquisition of Pacific Copper represents a significant milestone in Copper Point's geographic expansion and diversification initiatives. Upon closing, Pacific Comp will continue to operate under its current name as part of the broader Copper Point family of companies. Terms of the agreement include the purchase of adverse development reinsurance coverage on Pacific Comp's pre-acquisition claims. The transaction is expected to close at the end of the year, subject to customary closing conditions and regulatory reviews and approvals. 
And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.